Welcome to Into the Verse, where we share new and unexpected insights about the Parsha, diving deep into the verses to uncover the Torah's own commentary on itself. Hi, I'm Imu Shalev. And I am Ari Levison, one of the scholars at Aleph Beta. And we have a special announcement today. Unfortunately, this will be my very last episode hosting Into the Verse. Aleph Beta is gearing up to launch two new incredible podcasts, and I'm going to be focusing my energy on getting those off the ground. Emu, Rabbi Foreman, and the rest of the team have been doing some really cool, brand new scholarship that you are all going to love. Emu, why don't you tell everyone a bit about those podcasts? Sure. The first one's going to be called A Book Like No Other, and it's actually going to be Rabbi Foreman's main podcast. It's going to be the place for him to showcase his latest and greatest research. It's not going to be timely topics like Into the Verse, but instead it's going to allow Rabbi Foreman to spend multiple weeks on a topic and really explore some of Torah's most incredible secrets with a depth that he just can't do on Into the Verse. Not only am I psyched about this, but I've even heard Rabbi Foreman talk about how excited he is for this new platform to teach Torah. So what's the second podcast? The second one is something that I've personally been dreaming about for a really long time. It's an effort to explore the meaning behind laws and mitzvahs that we practice, sort of an attempt to get at the why behind what we do. So like mikvah, tzitzis, nida, shabbos, what's the meaning behind those mitzvos? And what I think makes it really special is that we're going to use classic Aleph Beta methodology, a close read of biblical text, to see if the Torah intends for us to know some of that meaning. The hope is that once we understand those mitzvos better, we can renew our passion and enthusiasm and hopefully, hopefully, improve even our relationship with our creator. I'm really excited about it and I hope our listeners will enjoy. But in the meantime, I'm going to be handing over the reins of Into the Verse to our very capable Ari Levison. You're doing what? Just kidding. I knew that already. I am really excited for this. We have some incredible Torah in store, and I cannot wait to share it with you. You might be wondering if things are going to change here at Into the Verse. There'll be a few changes. We're going to do some more conversational-style episodes, and we may try out some new things for the outros. But for the most part, it's going to be the same great Aleph Beta Torah you keep coming back for. And with that, it's time for this week's episode. Parshat Chaye Sarah opens with the death of Sarah Imenu, our matriarch Sarah. I always expect this moment to hit me in a really momentous way. This is the first loss of one of our nation's leaders. A time to pause and reflect on the incredible impact Sarah had on shaping who we are as a people. But see, that's just it. When you stop and think about Sarah, it's hard to put your finger on what that impact was. Sure, on the family tree of the Jewish people, she's right at the top. But what is it about her as a person that we are supposed to remember and emulate? Well, in this week's episode, Rabbi Foreman finds a clue to the lasting legacy of Sarah's life by looking, in all places, at the Torah's description of her death. That clue hinges on a seemingly technical fact found in the Parsha's opening verse, the number of years Sarah happened to live. Here is Rabbi Foreman. The opening verse of Parsha Chayesara talks about the amount of years that our matriarch Sarah lived. And, as it happens, that verse gets featured in a famous rabbinic riddle. Let me tell you about it. The immortal sage Rabbi Akiva, we're told, once saw his students dozing off in class. 
and he decided to shake him back awake with a challenge, a question he posed about Sarah's lifetime. We're told she was 127 years old, and Rabbi Akiva picked up on that. He challenged his students with this query. Why was it exactly that Esther ended up ruling over 127 provinces? Ella, Tavo Esther Shahisa Batbita Shal Sara Shahita Meava Esther Vesheva. It came about because Esther was a descendant of Sarah. Sarah lived to 127 years old. Therefore, Tim Lochal Meava Esther Vesheva Medinos let Esther, her descendant, come and rule over 127 provinces. But, you know, what's the deal with this riddle? At face value, Rabikiva is making this strange, almost humorous, logical leap. Yes, Sarah's age happens to correspond to the number of provinces ruled over by Esther, and that's sort of an intriguing coincidence, but does Queen Esther, this heroine of the Purim saga, have anything really to do with Sarah, Abraham's wife? And so the question really is, was Rabbi Akiva just joking here? Was this really just a harmless little stunt to wake up his sleepy students? Or did Rabbi Akiva's little wake-up-the-students joke conceal a hidden meaning that his students, and we, might eventually glean from it? To begin to see what Rabbi Akiva might have been getting at, let's start with this question. Did Sarah and Esther truly have anything fundamental in common with one another? At face value, not so much. They're notable figures of the Bible. They're both women. But a lot of other women are also notable in the Bible. Miriam, Deborah, Yael, Ruth, to name just a few. And yet, in Rabbi Yehiva's mind, there was actually something particular about Sarah and Esther that seems to have bound them together. Their respective 127s were somehow aligned with one another. What was that quality that bound these women together? To get a clue, I want to take you back to what Rashi actually tells us was Abraham's eulogy, as it were, for Sarah. Now, to be sure, although the text of the Torah tells us that Abraham did eulogize Sarah, it doesn't tell us what he said. Rashi surmises, though, that the way the Torah counts Sarah's 127 years alludes to the essence of Abraham's eulogy. Vayiyu chaye Sarah, and the life of Sarah, was meashana, esrim shana, v'sheva shanim, was a hundred years, twenty years, seven years, shnei chaye Sarah. Those were the years of the life of Sarah. So Rashi, when he interprets the breakup of these years into groups, he suggests that there were actually three groups of years, each connected to each other. When Sarah was a hundred, Rashi says, she was as guiltless, as free from sin, as when she was just twenty, and when she was twenty, she was as beautiful, as innocent-looking, as when she was just seven. And that, Rashi says, was the essence of Abraham's eulogy. I heard an idea a long time ago, quoted in the name of Rabbi Soloveitchik, that's how the idea resonated with me, and I want to share it with you. Rabbi Soloveitchik saw in Rashi a kind of path through time that Sarah charted. Seven. Twenty, a hundred, three stages. You see, as we go through life, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, we all go through stages. Earliest youth is filled with innocence, exuberance, curiosity. We're discovering ourselves. 
And when we become adolescents, we start prizing independence. And as we get older, we find ourselves responsible for others, focused on the future. And eventually adulthood gives way to middle age. Middle age gives way to our sunset years. Each of these stages comes with new priorities, new ways of looking at our lives, new ways of looking at the world. Now, most of us go through life living each stage and then leaving it behind as we experience the next one. But there's another way to go through life, an extraordinary way, and it's the way that Sarah did it, Rabbi Soloveitchik says. And that's what Rashi was getting at with his cryptic comment. You see, the way Sarah did it, you don't just passively travel through life stages, discarding the past for the more immediate stage of the present. No, you build as you go. You take each stage with you as you encounter the next one. So, you know, you're seven, you're wide-eyed, you're curious, but as the years pass and you approach 20, you don't exchange that curiosity of youth for the independence and self-discovery of your new adolescent self. No, you take with you that curiosity. You merge it somehow into your new teenage self. And as you progress further towards adulthood and you start attaining a little bit of wisdom, you merge that wisdom with the independence of your earlier stages And that kind of synthesis, it continues through adulthood, through middle age, through your later years. And that, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, is what marked Sarah in Abraham's eyes as so extraordinary. She was able to bring all of her earlier selves with her as she aged. It made her years more powerful, more potent. Okay, so with this in mind, let's come back to Rabbi Akiva and his sleepy students. Rabbi Akiva connected Sarah's 127 years with Esther's 127 provinces. And I'd asked you what quality seems to unite Sarah and Esther. I think we're now in a position to answer that question. The quality was queenship. Let me explain. You see, a queen, when successful, is a uniter. She's not merely someone who makes the rules for a certain territory or decides the fate of her subjects in that territory. A queen does do all that, but if she's really successful, she also unites her subjects in some way. She transforms a mere territory into a nation. The people that comprise a nation are not just a bunch of individuals milling around, living in proximity to one another. They have some sort of common cause that binds them together, and the monarch is a living symbol of that cause. Hopefully, she works proactively to advance it. How does a king or a queen advance that cause? At their best, monarchs find ways to join individual talents to create a larger whole. Bob is a blacksmith, Phil's a farmer, Carol's a shepherdess, Beryl is a tailor. And the monarch? The monarch finds a way to incorporate the energies of Bob, Phil, Carol, and Beryl towards common goals. A king or queen unites unique individuals and inflects their talents towards the service of the nation's cause. Esther played that kind of role on the world stage, uniting peoples from across far-flung provinces. She was a ruler of territory, of space. But, Rabbi Akiva argues, she was actually living out a vision, first formulated by her ancestor, Sarah, a person who we might call an empress of time. You see, what Rabbi Akiva is really saying is that Esther had a teacher, as it were, 
What Esther did on a grand scale when she united individual people, Sarah, long before her, did on a much more private, personal level when she united individual moments, moments of her life. In doing that, Sarah was a ruler of years. She bound years together so they weren't just lost as time marched on. She allowed the whole of her moments to become more than the sum of their parts. And here's the kicker. Think for a minute about Sarah's name. Her name actually expresses royalty. Her name was originally Sarai, which can be translated as my princess, almost as if it were a term of endearment that Abraham, her husband, had used for her. But then one day, God came out of the clouds and changed her name. He told Abraham that from here on out, Sarai was to be known as Sarah. God says to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, don't call her Sarai. Her name is Sarah. Rulers of nations shall come from her. Sarah. Not Sarai, my princess, just princess. It was as if God was saying to Abraham, She's not merely your princess. She's more universal than that. Rulers of nations will come from her. She's to be a princess of the world. She belongs to humanity itself. Listen carefully to those words of that verse. Rulers of nations shall come from her. And note the plural. There are nations, many of them. So let me ask you historically, when did that prophecy come true? When did a descendant of Sarah live to become not just queen over a particular nation, but a ruler of many nations, an empress, as it were? It happened in the days of Ahasuerus, when Esther became queen over Persia's 127 provinces, the largest empire the world had ever seen. You see, the woman who ruled over 127 territories was the descendant of the woman who in her own life had ruled over 127 years. Two queens, but of different realms, years and territories, time and space. Not all of us can be emperors over space. We don't have to be, but we can be emperors of time in our own lives. Indeed, Esther is not the only one who can learn from Sarah. Sarah's example can help us, her descendants, also find ways to become masters of our moments, just like she was. Hey, it's Ari again. When I think about this idea of taking the best parts of each stage of life and incorporating them into who we become next, I couldn't help but think of my mom. She's a role model to me in so many ways, but one of them is her refusal to fully grow up and let go of all the amazing traits that define children. She really does follow after Sarah. So... I decided to get her on the phone and ask her how the 7 and 27-year-old Lisi that she carries with her enriches her life today. I figured I'd share that conversation with you. For context, she spends much of her time working with children, including teaching kindergarten science, which she mentions here. 
All right, mom. So you were telling me what this idea means to you. So much of what moves me is kind of seeing kids' eyes open to things that they are just discovering, you know, kind of the the sense of wonder and the sense of discovery and just taking so much intellectual and spiritual joy in the world because they're discovering things for the first time. So I'm looking out the window right now and like the leaves here are um, beautiful, gorgeous. They're yellow and red and orange and a lot of them are falling, like blowing off the trees. So most adults, it's like, yeah, this is what's happened every October of my life. But there's a part of me that sees it like a child where it's like the tree got the signal because of the fall. And right, it's important for the leaves to fall off the tree because otherwise the tr- it would be bad for the tree in the winter. The, the leaves are sort of letting the tree live by falling off. And like all of the things that I tell the little kids, that is a part of how I see it. And I think that to me, that's just as as spiritually meaningful in terms of how I see the world as the more grown up ways that I think about the world and you know learn about things and talk about things. So if we think about what happens when you reach that next stage of life, you start to gain a sense of sophistication and you learn about the chlorophyll and the leaves and the science behind the color change, right? Right. Like usually what are 20 year olds doing? They're in university. They're studying things at a much higher level than they ever did before. And in some ways they know more than their parents about certain things because they're taking, they're taking classes in it. And there's a sense of empowerment in your twenties that you're, you're on your way to who knows, you know, who knows what great things and, and what you'll do or accomplish or discover. Uh, Yeah, definitely. So mom, you're uh, well past your twenties, although you're nowhere near a hundred either. What do you think you gain with more maturity that you don't have at seven or 27. So Safda, she posted October 7th on Facebook. She took a photograph of Bolo Pond with the colors of autumn starting to show. And this is like her walking route with Saba. They've walked around Bolo Pond how many millions of times, right? And she wrote, we're leaning into a beautiful New England autumn. At this point, the words of the late poet Howard Nemirov, my dissertation advisor, resonate. Once more, great season, play it through again. Bullopan moving in all seasons is at its spectacular best with purple asters and mustardy goldenrod clustered under orange, red, and yellowing trees. So here's somebody who has seen 80 autumns. I think that, you know, when you've seen 80 autumns, there's something about seeing those, those things that come back every year, you know, the, the colors of the autumn, rather than appreciating like the, the newness and the wonder and the amazement, there's something about the beauty of, of the return of things. Do you think it's possible to combine all three stages then? Like, can you grow with that sense of beauty and repetition while still maintaining that seven-year-old sense of freshness and wonder? Yeah. I mean, I think that especially when you've seen something 80 times or you've learned all there is to know about it, when you discover something new or see it from a different perspective, I think then it's like especially amazing. You know, and I, I feel this 
you know, both for myself or I've heard Saba and Safta say it too. It's say I I come up with an interpretation for something in, in Torah and I share it. Or, or if you do, Ari, if you come up with an idea and you share it and you hear, you know, Safta or Saba say like, huh, I never thought about it that way before. I, I think that's really good. There's always more to be to me to be moved by to be um, to discover to see in a different way um, or just to appreciate how beautiful it is. Mom, this was so wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of this. It was super nice to to have this conversation with you, Ari, and um, you really um, uh, just made my day beautiful. So thank you. To our listeners, I hope this illustration of what it's like to maintain that childlike sense of wonder and discovery year after year helped bring the ideas of this week's episode to life. I know it did for me. We all have that inner 7-year-old or inner 20-year-old in us, and we can all be more unified versions of ourselves if we don't leave them buried, but, like Sarah, embrace those parts of us instead. Please subscribe to Into the Verse wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends and family about us. That really helps us grow. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating or even a brief review. It helps other listeners find us. You can find much more outstanding Torah on Aleph Beta's website at ab.video. Join the growing number of our paid subscribers who have full access to thousands of videos and podcasts on the weekly Parsha, holidays, and big ideas in Judaism. Aleph Beta subscribers also receive each week's Into the Verse transcript directly to their email to print or read online. That's handy dandy for Shabbat reading. This episode was written and recorded by our lead scholar, Rabbi David Foreman. When it originally aired on Aleph Beta, it was edited by Rifki Stern. Into the Verse editing was done by Evan Wiener. The senior editor was Tik Vahacht. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Additional audio editing by V. Kalp Sharma. Our editorial director is me, Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.